Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I'm going to talk today about the novel Texas, in Espanol, Texas, though it has an X. It's pronounced like Mexico, Mexico, with the X. Um, that was translated and published by Deep Vellum, translation of Samantha Schnee. Um, I'm going to try to explain you what I, what what was my desire when I started to write the book. I fell into an incident by chance. I discovered a, a character, a person, a historical character that had the same name as a cousin of mine, Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. And it called my attention the name. It was a peculiar name, Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. Who is Juan Nepomuceno Cortina? And it called my attention every every time I read something about him, it called my attention more. First, that I knew nothing about him, that being a Mexican writer and intellectual, I had no no contact with him. While he's a very important character for La Raza, no doubt he's a very important character for La Raza. He's the first guy who used the word La Raza to talk about the Mexicans and the 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 the. the, the Mexican-Americans in the United States, and he invaded the United States six times, not only once, but six times with a very uh, efficient army. Uh, so efficient was his army, this is real life, it's not my novel, I did something with it, but it's, I'm telling you all the things that called my attention with this character. So efficient was his army that um, he decided to first pretend he was a friend and a, 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 a collaborator of the Confederates, and then with his army he joined the North, the Yankees. And he is a hero of the American Civil War. In Mexico, he's also a hero, or was, it's a, a forgotten hero. He fought against the French when the French invaded Mexico. So he was, let's say, an expert leader of his own army. And he gave his army to the causes he liked. Sometimes in a tricky way, as I was saying, he worked with the Confederates, in that case not with his army, but smuggling the cotton, the forbidden cotton, selling it abroad. So he, he is a, quite a fascinating character. But every time I knew more about him and knew more about my ignorance, how come as a Mexican I had no recollection of him, how, how, how come he was not in the public memory of Mexico. The first corrido that ever exists, this kind of music, incredibly beautiful music that today uh, we only remember it because of the narco corridos, which is... Uh, 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 a mistake because it's a music that is charged with the Indian Mexican music, the Afro Mexican music, the 
y other immigrants of the of the south of the United States, now the south of the United States, in those days the north of Mexico, all the other immigrants, all that mix created a new kind of music that is the corrido. And the oldest corrido that is uh, that we keep in, 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 in musical history is a corrido to Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. So he's really a very important and beautiful character. But every time I knew more about it and I, I, I wondered how come I know nothing about it and how come we as Mexicans don't look at that part of a common history? How come we have erased it from our pantheon or from, from our collective memory? But every time I went more into Juan Nepomuceno Cortina thinking I'm going to write a novel on Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. I'm going to do a novel about this guy but every time I went closer to him I got in a way more distant, more distant of his person because what started being for me more fascinating was Texas. That uh, what was called in Mexico uh, El Lejano Norte, the far north of Mexico, uh, that is also erased from the collective memory of Mexico, and that is totally distorted in the American memory. It's remembered in a different way of what it was. So I decided to make that Texas my main character. And one of the players of that history was going to be Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. And with Juan Nepomuceno Cortina, many other characters that appear around Texas. Because what I wanted to paint was Texas in one moment. The moment when it had already Texas had declared itself independent, it had been annexated to the United States, the civil war was about to start, and in that precise moment that some academics had called la gran ladronería, the big theft, in that precise moment where the lawyers of the North, the New Yorker lawyers had arrived to Texas to make the legal robbery against the, against the Mexicans and the other immigrants, immigrants from many different parts of the world, immigrants that had been attracted by an idea of an ideal Texas that Mexico had sold beautifully around the world. Because Mexico had been uh, talking about this land for immigrants with all uh, the power of a young nation, a nation that had just gone through its independence and was promoting that land of Texas to make a Mexican front. A front against the so-called Apaches, all the Indian nations that were many from locals, but many more that were pushed from the north, sent south by the northern Americans, thrown out of their own territories, and that came all together into the Indian territory or la apacheria as we call it in Mexico, la comancheria. This land of many Indians, they wanted to make a front in front of those 
foreigners to say so, and in front of the Americans of the of the northern the, the country of the north. So they were promoting this as the land of the future, the land where the horses grew on their own. Uh, there were mines, as were in California, as we know very well, and the best mines, by the way, were Mexicans then in those times, and those attracted the Americans that came with the golden mine. That story is not being told yet. Somebody will ever write it as a novel, recreating that singular uh, moment of California. But what I wanted was to recreate that attraction, that sexy Texas of that particular period. And in order to do that, I collected many characters and created one voice. The many characters are many. They are something like, I don't know, 240. I lost the count. I Every time the book is edited, I have the editor telling me, no, it's not 239, it's 280. I don't know exactly. But they were many, they are many characters. I wanted them all appearing as part of this human landscape, human and non-human landscape that is Texas. These many voices in one tone, the tone of El Pueblo, the tone of the collective memory, the collective memory that in that, in that minute was very much alive. And it is a very Mexican voice in Spanish, a very, very mixed Mexican voice that is full with the Mexican heritage, the literature, the songs, the characters, all that's there. Plus, of course, it is not a dead voice. It's a voice that's looking at all the new immigrants that have arrived. The Americans, the Austrians, the Russians, the French, the Italians, all those characters, that the Chinese, all those characters that came from all around the world with the magnet of the new land, the land of the future, what was going to be the future, where you could become rich, you could create your own future and your own patrimony. So that was, that was the idea of that Texas. Um, I enjoyed very much writing the novel. I hope you enjoy reading it. And I'm going to, I don't know how many of you uh, understand Spanish. So I'm going to, just as a little trick, read a, a page in Spanish, and then I'm going to switch into English. And I'm not going to repeat the same one, not to bore the ones who are bilingual, because the bilinguals never should be punished. <laughs> They should always be rewarded, as many languages as you can. So the first part of the novel, the very first pages, uh, 200 pages, um, the time is frozen. I also wanted to write a Mexican Western. I love Westerns, but I'm tired to see in the Westerns how Mexicans are always lazy, ugly, they are the traitors, you can never trust them, they are taking a perpetual siesta. Um, and even worse with Tarantino, because there we have the Mexicans totally abolished from Texas. We have his his western in, that starts in Texas, and there's not even one Mexican. Not only there's not even one Mexican, but he gives a German the role that Mexicans had. Hundreds, thousands 
of slaves of African Americans flee to Mexico because that was the land of the future. Not Texas when it was independent, Mexico. Because Mexico, when it became an independent country, declared that there were, there were never slaves in Mexico. Every person that lived in that territory was a free man. And Mexicans created chains to help the African Americans go all the way down. Uh, so that part of the story, very well known by Tarantino, was twisted, and there we have a German that's doing business with them instead of having a Mexican. So tired of that, I decided I was going to do my own Mexican Western. And in my Mexican Western, the very handsome one, the very loyal one, the very honorable one, the one who shot first was going to be a Mexican, not an American. And it was going to be against an American. Sorry, excuse me, but it had to be that. It had to be, um, it was a matter of justice. So all the first part of the novel, the 200 first pages, I freeze the moment, that spectacular moment of the Westerns, that it's almost like a mystery moment when the bad and the good put their hands in their pocket in their in their guns and are about to shoot and those seconds those minutes I stretch it into probably two minutes are shown what it happens all around how people feel about these two encountering these two putting their guns here who wants this to win the other one to win and that way i i uh, paint the whole area the whole Texas, that Texas, the Texas from uh, Rio Nueces to the Rio Grande that had recently been stolen, excuse me, stolen from Mexico, that had recently changed and that was so full of immigrants of all kinds, plus all the Indian nations present. So I'm going to read for you in Spanish only the very first, the very beginning, and then I'm going to switch to the second part and explain you what the second part of of the novel is, because not all the novel is that suspension. The first 200 pages, pages are this suspension, a suspension that has to be trepidating. It's time suspended, but the eye flies. The eye travels very quickly, visiting all these characters, their voices, in the recollection of one, one person that I imagine. I don't know, I think she or he, I don't, I'm not very sure if he's a he or a she, but it's inside the house. Probably she's a cook. She has all this reference to food um, and has read a lot of things. And well, so I'm going to start with it. Raya el mediodía en Bruneville. El cielo sin nubes, la luz vertical, el velo de polvo espejeante, el calor que fatiga la vista. En la plaza del mercado, frente al café Ronsard, el sheriff Sher se escupe a Don Nepomuceno cuatro palabras. ¡Ya cállate, graciento pelado! Las dice en inglés menos la última. ¡Shut up, greaser, pelado! Cruza la plaza Frank, uno de los muchos mexicanos que se malganan la vida de Correveidil en las calles de Bruneville, un pelado, venía diciéndose en inglés, lo hablaba tan bien que le cambió el nombre, antes era Pancho López, y que le urge, que le urge. 
acaba de despachar una libra de hueso y dos de falda para el cocido en la casa del abogado Stillman. Oye la frase, alza la vista, ve la escena, literalmente salta los pocos pasos que lo separan del mercado y corre a repetírsela, a bocajarro, a Sharp el carnicero. El nuevo sheriff le dijo tal y tal, al señor Nepomuceno, y de un hilo añade en un tono muy distinto, maquinal, como exhalando, que dice la señora Luz, que dice la floja, que si le envía cola para la sopa, casi ya sin aire, termina con que le urge lo que se había venido repitiendo en voz baja a cada dos pasos desde las casas de los Stillman hasta aquí, aunque luego casi se le disolvieran las sílabas por el chisporroteo de la frase ardiente. That's the first page in Spanish. So now let's switch to the second part. The second part, time froze, time returns to its own rhythm when the beautiful, handsome, extraordinarily courageous Mexican shoots the American, which is the sheriff. The sheriff is the only... This is the big theft moment. Nobody wants to use the star. This is not a moment to risk your, your life for that nonsense called the law. This is the law of whoever is able to, to win against the other, against who cannot defend itself. So the sheriffs are disposable. And the last one we have there, he is a carpenter. Well, he is a very bad carpenter. And he thinks he is teased by others or they pull his leg and they make him use the star. So he's the one who is carrying the star. He found in the street a guy peeing. Uh, it's an old cowboy, a Mexican, which in my very first version of the novel was the main character because he is the one who carried the music from the south, who had learned from the Afro-Mexicans of the coast the beautiful sones, and who has carried his uh, wisdom of music throughout all inner Mexico. He has gone into El Bajío, he has gone to the north, he has arrived to Texas carrying his little violin and nourishing his music with all the other traditions that are around. Obviously he was a mythical character because this didn't happen in one person. It happened throughout many others that contaminated the music with the others and created this beautiful music, this beautiful new song, this beautiful new rhythm that were the corridos. But I made it in one character, Lázaro. And this Lázaro um, Well, in my very first version, Lázaro was going to tell the story all over. In this last version, Lázaro's past is gone. The narrator knows what was his past. And Lázaro is only an old Mexican cowboy that no longer has job. He's there. He has no money, no youth. Uh, the real cowboys who only took care of horses are no longer usable. You now need somebody who is able to shoot and to kill and to protect the animals from being robbed by others and the human beings from others. So this old, beautiful Lazaro is drunk. But he's not drunk because he wanted, but because somebody bet he was unable to drink, whatever it is. And he pees in the street. The sheriff sees him and starts beating him. And 
Nepomuceno, this is a historical story. Nepomuceno saw the sheriff beating his old employee, his old cowboy, and told the sheriff, come on, don't beat him. I'll remedy this. Let me see what was the problem here and I'll calm him down. And the sheriff insulted him. He insults him and that's what creates the hero of Juan Nepomuceno. He was only a rich kid, owner of lands that had, he had lost many of them in the hands of the new uh, law that had appeared. Uh, and he then started making his uh, armies and he became an involuntary hero. That's the minute of this of my novel that I capture from real history. In the second part, I let time loose. We see Nepomuceno and his men flee to Mexico and start to plan the invasions to the United States. I, I compress them, all of them, into only one invasion. Um, in that minute, time is freed, we see them run, and comes part two when we see them uh, assembling their camp and doing the army and seeing what's around them. And of all that, it's very difficult for me to choose exactly what I want to read, but today I was in the mood of sharing with you a character I love throughout the novel, and that character are the cows. I adored the cows. The cows that had been an exception and that became so abundant in that Texas because the land was transformed, the grasses were transformed, which was terrible because then we lost the bisontes, the buffaloes. Buffaloes died because of the new kind of grass that was a very envious grass that needed a lot of water. So that grass consumed a lot of water, but it reproduced very fast, and cows had could be... Uh, fabricated or created in a kind of pre-industrial way. So I'm, I'm sharing with you one of my cows because I, as I told you, I really like the cows. Uh, Down finds the Rio Bravo in a mood contrary to Catalino's unruly, ill-humored, agitated, rolling, unpredictable. It doesn't matter to Ursulo. He watches the surface and knows how to find his way. A dead cow floats by, swollen and rotting, half split open. Ursulo hardly notices. He's busy about the inspector, his little boat, navigating with care. What does death matter? The floating cow dreams. I, the rotting cow, Endowed with the life of these worms, dream that I am about to eat a mouthful of fresh grass. In the grass, a caterpillar watches me. It's not like any of the worms in my belly. In the caterpillar's eye, I see the moon shining at noon. In this day that I share with the moon, reflected in the caterpillar's eye, I see myself, a cow that's very much a cow, a ruminating, sweet, edible cow that gives the milk that makes their sweets and cakes. Doesn't feel good to be breathing worms. I am a cow, not a coffin. I wasn't born to become a swollen, drifting balloon. 
Perhaps I should calm myself. I'm the cow who used to moo, the cow who dreams, inspired by my warm souls. I forget about the earthworm and her eye. I take a bite of the delicious fresh grass, which might not be real, but no matter. And then I'm going to read for you. Well, the novel doesn't have a happy end. Doesn't have a happy end because that beautiful character Lazaro that I created, the violinist, the old cowboy that had been a kid, traveled all the way north, learning all the rhythms and the tunes and the, tradi the musical traditions around and nourishing his violin. Um, I fed him in order to remember all the Mexicans that were lynched in those years in Texas. Because of them, there's no, Mexi no memory in Mexico at all. We think lynching and we think of Afro-Americans uh, and mostly we don't think about lynching. So it was for me a surprise when I was learning about my Juan Nepomuceno Cortina, the guy who brought me to this world, to whom I'm, I'm deeply in debt. It was for me a, a surprise, a horrifying surprise, that they were all these Mexicans lynched because they were Mexicans. Uh, to take out their lands from them, accused of being robbers of the cattle, whatever it was. So I made my or my once upon a time hero because my first hero had been Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. My second hero I had opted to was this musician, the violin player and my third hero was Texas. But my second hero I decided I was going to telling him this story of the Mexicans, the story of the lynched one. So I'm going to read just a very little passage of it. There are many other characters, and it's a, maybe I shouldn't read that to you. Why? Why suffer? There's absolutely no need to suffer in life. There's enough in daily life to suffer to just put the... But I needed this uh, memory in the, in the novel. It had to be there. And he's such a sweet character. I really like him. Though he's not my favorite. My favorite is a uh, girl. It was very difficult to have girls in the novel. It was very difficult because in the, in the dream of the cowboy, that man of the future, because now it's difficult for us to think that once upon a time, the dream of the man of the future was a cowboy. And it came along with all this idea of conquering savages' lands, eh, of having a, a very pro, eh, prodigal nature providing, eh, of being free, of being out of any state power. It was a very, very attractive dream. So much so that many women posed as cowgirls, though they were not cowgirls. Very few girls were cowgirls, but the photographs of the cowgirls are very abundant. But they dressed as a cowboy or girl because they wanted to be part of that future, of the future of, the, of that land, that new land that was appearing. So... I had these cowboys that I adored, by the way. I had these uh, 
house that I also adored, as you heard. I had these abhorrent bankers from the north that came to steal from the other ones that I kind of also liked and despised too. One of them, very interesting by the way, he's the founder of uh, Brownsville, Stillman. He's a historical character, though I twisted his name. Stillman is S-T-I-L-L-M-A-N. But I made him S-T-E-A-L-M-A-N because he's really the professional robber. And may I tell you, S-T-I-L-L-M-A-N is the father of the founder of Citibank in real life, and, and the founder of Brownsville. And Brownsville was uh, built in lands of Juan Nepomuceno Cortina, my original hero of the novel. That's why Nepomuceno fought so much there at the beginning, because those were the lands of his mother, and they were stolen legally from her by Mr. Stillman. So, um, so what I did with the girls, I needed... I wanted girls in the novel uh, because I'm a girl. Though sometimes I have written novels only with boys. My pirates novels have no girls at all, but in this one I wanted, so I created a commune of girls, of cowgirls. And I have there my Rancho de las Tías, my commune of girls, because I wanted them part of the dream of the future. And they, I wanted them as those socialists that had arrived to Texas and had made the commune Bettina or many others where all were equal. There was no private property. They all shared that richness of the land. So I made them. I have them, I, and they are there too also in the novel, Rancho Las Tías. Um, so maybe I should better read you from the Rancho Las Tías instead of reading you of the lynching. I don't know. Rancho Las Tías. Let me see if I find Rancho Las Tías. Because I had decided the lynching, but now it kind of felt like, why am I going to, why am I going to punish you? who are so heroic to come to listen to this reading. No way. Now, can I find it in English? This is so difficult. Oh, gosh. I won't be able to find Las Tías in English. I very well know in Spanish. But in English, it's so strange, the feeling. I have other women characters that I really like. I have one, the wife of Stillman, who writes herself letters. All through the novel, she writes herself letters to herself, but to her other self, herself in New York, because she's a New Yorker, and she hates, hates Bruneville. Brownsville is turned into Bruneville. Everybody's turned, every place and every person is turned into something a little bit different. So... The southern city that in Spanish is called Matamoros, in English is called Kil Sanchez. <laughs> because we were Moros too in Mexico, of course. Ah, there's another character. I'm going to write you, read you this little passage, and it's going to be the last. We're going to end there. In real life, one of the armies of Juan Nepomuceno Cortina had a guy preceding it, who had a cross who spoke. He had a talking cross that was uh, a guide, a spiritual guide, because as I told you, Mexico was founded as a country where everybody was free, 
which I think is great, but it was founded as a country where there was only one religion, and it was obligatory, and it was Catholicism. And I'm very sorry, I went to a Catholic school, and my parents were very Catholic, and there I have my little issues. And so I, I, had to, I had to have this, because that was the light of the army, and it agglomerated people, the cross that spoke, the talking cross. So I'm going to read you a little, little bit bit of El Illuminado, this guy who has his own cross that talks. Uh, he, we've seen how he did the cross. He took two parts of a place and he went to tie them together like a cross and then the cross talks. South of the Rio Bravo, El Illuminado enters the church and stops in front of the font of holy water, whether of his own accord or at the cross's bidding is unclear. When El Illuminado is about to dip the filthy cross into the holy water, Father Vera, who might also be acting on orders of a holy voice, dashes out of the confessional. Hey Lupe, that's holy water! The talking cross responds in a frigid tone of voice. Crucified on Ter Pontius Pilate, he suffered, died, and was buried. And the group of old church ladies, following El Illuminado, murmur, Praise the Lord, holy be, and other such blessings. Father Vera takes water from the font and blesses the cross with a long prayer. The church ladies, reeling off strings of Pray for all sinners. Keep a short distance. The talking cross fills them with fear. Immediately word gets around that the talking cross has been daunting holy water, which we know is not true, and folks start to believe it has curative powers. Okay, thank you very much. Do we have questions for our author? Yes. Yeah, it sounds so interesting. And uh, you uh, look at uh, history. And uh, when, when were you first inspired? What was your first writing? For this novel was the catching the name of Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. Uh, and I caught it by mistake. I caught it because, uh, unluckily, this uh, wave of violence of Mexico, the so-called drug of wars, uh, had gotten a new casualty, a guy called Juan Nepomuceno, who was uh, the father of uh, Disappeared. And he was claiming, where's my son, where's my son? And he was murdered in Chihuahua. And for my, my bi-monthly column of the newspaper, I always collect stories where I want to tell, like make a little narrative of something that for me is very interesting in that, in that moment. So, and I always play with uh, uh, narrative and very historical things that have happened or are happening in that moment. So 
I wanted to know more about this guy, Juan Nepomuceno in Chihuahua, and just by chance I stumbled into Juan Nepomuceno Cortina. So I started collecting information about Juan Nepomuceno Cortina, thinking I'm going to write something for the newspaper on him, only that. That was it. So first I read the very short uh, biography of Larralde about him. That's a very beautiful biography. And then I found in this magnificent, big, uh, scrupulously uh, written and researched no, uh, biography about him by Thompson. And, and I got into it. And when I looked around, I had been beaten by Texas. In reality, it was it was only him thinking him, ah, oh, well, maybe I'll do something with him. And suddenly I was in the middle of the cowboys, the thieves, the buffaloes, the horses, the mustangos, the, the cows, and, and the grass, and, and, and all those Indians with so different uh, worlds with them. Uh, and I was fascinated by it, and it was for me an adventure, uh, a joy, uh, and you know the, the wonderful thing of writing novels is that you deal a knot with reality. You have you can twist it. So reality is inclement and harsh, and many times it's unpolished and nasty and ugly or doesn't rhyme, makes no sense. But in a novel, you can make things sense, and you can organize and 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 change and twist. So I did this that is like a chant of love for a Texas that I found when I was searching about something very painful. Uh, so all the procedure uh, was more or less like that. It was a long, long uh, uh, adventure and wonderful. And there's, there's something very nasty of writing a novel, and it's you have to finish it. <laughs> you finish it, and then you are expelled. You are out of that, uh, that sphere, that, that coherent, that uh, tone, that sense, that uh, uh, wonderful thing. And then, of course, I write another novel then, because if not, I would stay the rest of my life sad, and I don't want to be sad. I enjoy life too much. <laughs> Any other questions? What other books did you write? Well, I have written 17 novels. I'm a maniac. I write all the time. The first novels had uh, children as main characters, and partially my, my, my childhood. Mexico City in the 50s and the 60s, that wonderful Mexico City that, that I had the, the privilege of being born at, wonderful city. Uh, and then um, I went into, I fell in love with Moctezuma, the last uh, uh, king of the Aztecs, uh, and I wrote a strange novel about him, uh, brought him back to life. So it's a kind of ghost, and but it's a novel. It's, um, 
And then, because I was there, I fell into colonial times, and I wrote uh, Duerme, a novel about... Uh, and then I wrote my novels on pirates, and then I switched a little bit in time, and I did something on the golden age of literature in Spain. I have a novel about Cervantes and the Battle of Lepanto. Uh, and then I have novels of contemporary things where I see a story like Novela Perfecta. That, uh, I, I, I am 60 years old and I've spent since I was 15 years old writing. Uh, uh, I've also written theater. Uh, I did many years ago and I am a poet too. And poetry I have continued publishing. <laughs> Uh, I guess in Amazon. I mean, Fondo de Cultura Económica. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a sin. It's a sin. the books. I apologize. Slash, slash, slash. It's very difficult. It's very difficult, the Spanish we books. Have, we, we do, actually. We can probably order it, too. If you live locally, we can, we can probably order it. For Fondo de Cultura yeah. Económica has a distributor in yeah. the States. Alfaguara also has a distributor in the States. ERA, I have three novels in ERA, but they don't. It's an independent publishing house. Sexto Piso Dos, they do have a distributor in the States. Um, it's difficult. here, but they're in English. So we have three other, other, other. Yeah, you, you can when you talk to one of our staff people, sure. Yeah. I think we had a question over here. Uh, I, I wanted to ask before the, the, the general subject about your wonderful writing about the specifically the book. You find the Cortina crossed uh, from Mexico to Texas in order to he crossed the other way around because he lived in the northern border. He accepted the American nationality because he thought his privileges were going to be kept because he was a landowner, a very, very big landowner. So he he was there and he was claiming legally to recuperate the land parts of the lands of his mother, where Bruneville, Brownsville was uh, uh, built. So he went into the legal fight. In fact, he won legally, but they never paid him a coin nor returned the lands. But he was doing it legally. And there he had the incident with the, with the sheriff. And it's true. It's that my novel is based in a true incident. I then uh, uh, worked all over it. But the fact is the incident happened. It was a, an old cowboy that had worked with him. He came forward to stop the sheriff from beating him. And the sheriff insulted him in such a way he couldn't permit that. So he took out his gun, the sheriff took out his gun and who shot first? The Mexican. And he had to flee. So he fled to Mexico and in Mexico he was like chosen like a leader by not only Mexicans but other immigrants and many Afro-Americans, now Afro- Mexicans that were living there. So his army was uh, Mexican, 
black, but he also had Cubans, uh, Europeans with him, and he, some even uh, Americans converted into his army, and he returned with the army, and he invaded repeatedly Texas with success, meaning he arrived to Brownsville, not in my novel, I make him come in and out. He arrived to Brownsville and he stayed there six weeks till it became a binational issue and the Mexican government begged him to return. And at the end, he was betrayed by the Mexicans. His life, as I was saying, is very complicated. He fought in the American Civil War. And at the very end, he cleaned the northern roads of Mexico of robbers, working for Benito Juarez and Porfirio Diaz. Uh, and at the very end of his life, uh, Porfirio Diaz betrayed him. The Mexican president invited him to Mexico. And when he arrived to Mexico, because he had done a pact with the Americans, he put him in jail. And first he was in jail, but then he gave him a house in Escaposalco, and he ended his last 27 years as a house prisoner. I don't know how you say that in English. He was kept in, the, in a house like a prisoner, um, with only one permission to return. And when he died old, he was still a hero. And when they were Porfirio Diaz gave him a white coffin as a gift. And when they were uh, parading to the cemetery, you don't say parading, when they were marching procession. the procession <laughs> to the cemetery, the crowds were shouting, Que viva Juan Cortina! Que viva Juan Cortina! Because he was such an alive hero. And they were singing the song of Juan Cortina. And there was not only one song, they were plays, they were all... He was very much adored in Mexico, but then we erased him. It's for me something... He's buried in Mexico City. His tomb, 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 tomb no longer exists. The house in Azcapotzalco that I searched scrupulously is no longer there. Uh, and he's like gone of all memory. Though Oscar Chavez does still sing his corrido. Mm. Thank you. Wow. Yes. I have two questions. Were you encouraged by your family to write? And how do you involve yourself in the translation of your work from Spanish to English or any other language? Thanks very much for your questions. I like them both. My father was a wonderful reader. He read for us aloud in the nights, in theory to make us sleep. But in reality, he never made me sleep. He converted me into an insomniac. I am very bad sleeping, and I think it's part of that thing that was for me so wonderful and beautiful, and I didn't want him to finish. He was a wonderful reader. The library at home was fantastic. Nevertheless, or yet, he didn't want me to be a writer. For him, it was very, very painful when I decided I was going to be a writer. He was full of fear that those kind of people that have bohemian lives and how was I going to sustain myself? Nobody was ever going to marry me. Uh, he was convinced of that before because I was a little bit... Uh, stubborn and the rest and he told me openly but you have a good head why are you going to do that who is going to sustain you don't do that and he was full of terror and prejudices of that of my becoming a writer and many years later 
um, I, I I had to leave the house. It was a big drama, like like a, almost a little soap opera. It was something very very hard for him, and in my family there was nothing similar to a writer at all. It was a, a, a family of another totally different profile. Uh, but I owe it to him. I owe it to his appetite for reading, his love for literature, and I was raised among books, and he, in fact, did make me a writer. I, many years later, I invited him once. I was invited to Frankfurt to the book fair, and I had two tickets, and I had nobody to go with, or I decided to go with him. And I phoned him and told him, do you remember you told me you couldn't? I was not going to be able to sustain myself. I invite you to Frankfurt. And I took him with me to Frankfurt, and he was very proud and happy and the rest, but it was not easy. A. B. Translation. Luckily, I worked in this book with a wonderful translator, or she worked with the book, and I was just like looking at it, testifying sometimes. Samantha Schnee. Um, was very difficult also to work with her because she took a path. My, my tone in Spanish is very difficult in this novel precisely because it is like very the people speaking, but also is full of a lot of literary references and music and things that, how could you convey that? The popular sayings. So Samantha very intelligently chose a tone more to say so historic. She, she raised it a little bit. Uh, and I was looking at it like wanting to bet, is she going to be able to sustain it or not? Because when I start writing a novel, the tone is the most important. Where do you, in which tone and which rhythm Besides I doing my maps, I, you know, I do my maps and my, my croquis and how it's going to be, but the tone is for me how to tune exactly. So I saw her in English tuning very differently. And I was like saying, how is she going to do it? But she did it. And she asked me a lot of questions. We worked together many hours uh, with her doubts and her things she had there that she needed solved or resolved or questions she had. Uh, and I really respect her because she pulled it. A uh, translator is a writer, and she had to write it completely. It's her book. It's very difficult for me to read in English, not only because Will Evans of Deep Vellum has done a very little typo. No, it's not the size of the letters. It's that I, I know I fell in love with my narrator, uh, and I have the I know how my narrator is that sense of humor. But she, Samantha, put the sense of humor in other parts. It's a very funny novel in many parts. But she switched it. She worked beautifully. I admire her work. It's not my novel. It's her novel. Hmm. Interesting. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.